Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. everyone. Welcome to Montrose Church. For those of you I haven't met, my name is Shauna and I am the kids pastor here at Montrose Church. Isn't Olivia amazing or should I say sock? (laughs) We're so thankful for her and her family for just helping us through these somewhat challenging times and helping us do fun things and keep things alive and going. And we're just so thankful for her. Olivia, you're awesome. We love you. I have so loved this woman of the Bible series so far. I love the fresh perspective and the power of God that shines so brightly through these women. And Pastor Dave has delivered these stories so wonderfully. And he's actually quite knowledgeable when it comes to women, considering he has four daughters and all. Um, I actually had to ask him the other day to step in and explain to my husband why he shouldn't tell me to chill. And he did a fantastic job explaining that. (laughs) But of course, we wanted a woman's perspective on this series, and I feel so honored to get to share with you today and tell one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. When Candace, Leabeth, and myself began outlining this series, we simply started by diving into the stories of the women of the Bible and what they teach us. And as we read the stories, we found that these women could be described in one word, and that was overcomers. They were true warriors of the king, women who were broken by the hurt of this world, but restored by Jesus. And those were women that we could relate to. You see, I grew up in a family of five. I am the oldest of three siblings. I have a brother and a sister. And in my family, football and really all sports were and still are a big deal. (laughs) In some ways, it's kind of silly. And in other ways, it's really meaningful. Um, My dad actually attributes football to leading him to his faith. He played at a Christian university, and through those connections, he found Jesus. And also, Dalton and I attribute our meeting through football. (laughs) Our, Our dads knew each other before we knew each other because they both played football at the same university, to the point that my dad admired Dalton's dad's ability and toughness on the field so much that he asked to have Dalton's dad's number once he graduated. So Dalton and I both grew up loving the number 63. It's kind of crazy. Um, So I was the first kid. And I think my dad just maybe couldn't stand it any longer. So when I was in fourth or fifth grade, my dad had the idea to put me on a flag football team at our church's sports league. And I don't really remember the conversation super well. I remember him kind of mentioning it to me. I said, sure. And then one day I just remember we were boiling a mouth guard in the kitchen. And then next I was on the field with a bunch of boys. I was the only girl. And I guess that my dad just assumed that football ran so deep in our blood that 
I didn't need anything to be explained to me. <laughs> so we were put on the line. I didn't know where to stand. And the whistle blew and I pulled the first flag of the first boy on the other team. And he didn't even have the ball. <laughs> he was pretty annoyed and I was still really confused. Um, but I ended up getting the hang of it. I learned little plays and practiced running routes and I even scored a few touchdowns. <laughs> And I remember by the end of that experience, though, feeling pretty empowered. I feel lucky to have a dad that never put me in a box. He threw me right on the field with a bunch of boys. He never judged me by being a girl. He only has judged me by my heart and the entirety of who I was made to be. Um, I feel my dad has always seen me to my core. And it's been a great representation of how our Heavenly Father sees us. As Hagar said, as we learned a few weeks ago, He is the God who sees me. This is what I want to talk about today, how the Father sees us, how that changes us, and how we can see each other. In preparing this message, I've been able to dive into one of the most powerful stories in the Bible, the woman at the well. She's a woman so burdened by her life and so entangled in her judgment of herself and the judgment that others spew on her that her life has become dim and heavy, it seems. When she meets Jesus at the well, her hurt clouds her vision so much that it takes some time and Jesus is prodding to have her really see him. And then an incredible thing happens. Jesus reveals who he is, the Messiah, to this woman, to the woman who the world has deemed as an outcast. She's deemed herself as an outcast and he chooses her to begin the spread of his message. It's so power, powerful and so dense. Um, I want to read it together right now. It's from the book of John chapter 4. Feel free to follow along with me as I try to tell this story. Jesus and his disciples left Judea and went once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman called to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which we'll talk about a little more here in a minute. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, 
everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He, he told her, go to your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. He revealed a lot to her there. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It goes on after that um, to say that the disciples returned and they found Jesus talking to this woman. Um, but she, she left her jar, she left her jug and ran off with excitement. And the woman went back into town and said to people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the people started to come out of the town and made their way towards him. So there's so much, so much that we can talk about from this story, but I, I want to point this out first. But Jesus does not let his judgment separate us from him. He didn't let his judgment of this woman separate him from her. Oftentimes, we let our judgment separate us from him, as she did. He knows it all. He's free to judge. But instead, we see in this story how he uses his knowing to draw her in, and he does the same for us, to let us know that he knows, <laughs> but he still loves us. Isn't that the greatest love? He knows us and still wants us to be free. You see, I wrote the outline of this message, and it's funny because when I went to read my synopsis, you know, a few months later, I actually wanted to change the title. It's overcoming judgment. But if I could redo it, I could, I would like to change the title of this message to overcoming the judgment that separates us. You see, talking about judgment is kind of difficult in church. Through my own human search of truth, what I found, and you do your own searching, please, but what I found is that I feel that it's gray. It's not totally black and white. 
the Bible actually speaks on judgment in various ways, and it can be a little bit difficult to make sense of. Let me explain. So in the book of John, chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus first says, judge not that you be not judged. But also in the book of John, chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, Paul wrote to the church of Corinth saying, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his praise from God. But then in the next chapter, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So it can feel at times that the Bible is teaching us that we are not to judge, but that also we are to judge. <laughs> but maybe in the right way, I'm sure there is a lot that can be said on this subject, and I don't really want to spend my time speaking to you all dissecting and deciding what is the ultimate truth in this matter. I'm not positive that there is one, or, or if that is what really matters. Our society is often addicted to certainty, but I believe that that can lead us astray at times. What I want to focus on today is that the judgment Jesus gives at the well leads to restoration rather than destruction. The judgment the woman had received, received from her fellow people up until that glorious day had only damaged her further, but the judgment Jesus presented made her whole. I think we are able to shift our view on judgment and realize that perhaps we are asked to judge at times ourselves and one another in that order, we better make sure we check for planks before we open our mouth, but not for the purpose of harm or shame, but of restoration. And Jesus in his way showed us at the well how this can be done. So that's my little summary of what I've been stewing on as far as judgment goes and what the Bible tells us. But today I wanna focus on this that we can overcome the judgment that separates us by meeting him at the well. At the well, Jesus' living water breaks down our judgment of each other, of ourselves, and of his grace. I want to first talk about the judgment we have for each other. And in order to do that, I wanted to discuss a little bit the context behind the Samaritans and the Jews. So we have this awesome video made by Jacob Jackson from an article I found to help illustrate that for us. And that will play now. Check that out. Angela N. Meyer helps us to understand the separation that existed between Jews and Samaritans during the time of Jesus. First, why would a Jew speak to any Samaritan on friendly terms? Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. Jews would normally avoid travel through Samaria, 
and any interaction that did happen between the two groups would be heavily charged by geographic, ethnic, and religious conflicts that divided them. The Jews did not recognize Samaritans as true Israelites. A dispute going back to the time of the exile and perpetuated by the elite of Judea. Jews also accused Samaritans of false worship because they rejected Jewish claims that all proper worship to Yahweh must be made in the temple state of Jerusalem. Even so, Samaritans continued to worship in their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the land of Jacob, home of their ancestors, as seemed proper to them. It would be naive to think that the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was one of polite disagreement. The Samaritan experience was one of oppression by the Jews, marked by discrimination and violence against their people. In other words, the Samaritan woman at the well had every reason to be distrustful of Jesus. Secondly, how would it be possible that a Jewish man would speak with a Samaritan woman? Jewish rabbinic laws were very strict on two critical matters. Jewish men were not to have public and open contact with women. And two, Jewish rabbis considered Samaritan women to be perpetually unclean. By that same standard, Jewish rabbis condemned all Samaritans to be unclean because men were in contact with unclean women, and their purity rules could not be guaranteed. The rabbinic warning against contact with women of any kind was extreme. He who talks much with womankind brings evil on himself. He neglects the study of the law and at the last will inherit the lake of fire. So, if speaking with a woman can cast one into the lake of fire, how much more will drinking from the same cup? So, in John 4, 1-42, Jesus is doing much more than asking for a glass of water from a stranger. He is very boldly breaking Jewish taboos with a purpose. David Dobb notices a beautiful nuance in this exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. When Jesus asked the Samaritan woman to give him a drink, she was surprised by his kindness. Why? Surely for an unsophisticated mind, as a rule, it is the offer of a drink, not the request for one which expresses love. And yet, considering what we now know of the harsh political and religious conflicts that plagued Samaritan interactions with Judeans, that situation does seem to have been reversed. Jesus offers love and acceptance to the woman by demonstrating a willingness to drink from her cup before offering her a drink from his. So... Did Samaritans and Jews hold judgment against each other in such a way that it separated them? Um, yes. Did Jesus have every intention to break down that separation? Absolutely. I grew up in Visalia, California, and I loved it there. Like most young people, I did wade through the waters of judgment in both junior high and high school. In junior high, my school made quite the display of judgment to the point that there were walls around the school that had all different types of kids 
that where they hung out. There was the skater wall, the prep wall, the biker wall, the gamer wall, and so on. All had these various identifiers of who kids felt they were at that time. And if you could get established on a wall, you were in good standing. Luckily, by the time we went to high school, that degree of separation broke down a little, but it still held on some too. One of the really cool things that happened while I was in high school was that there was this common denominator that combined a lot of us kids, and it was probably one of the last things that you would think could accomplish this, and that was drama class. <laughs> Theater was a really big deal at my school, and our drama teacher worked really hard to create no limits or boundaries up to who could be involved and experience and enjoy drama. To the point that our advanced drama class had 90 kids, and then there were multiple other drama classes, beginning and intermediate drama, that were also full. Somehow, the magic of theater brought kids of all kinds together, you know, techie kids, athletes, artists, introverts, extroverts, and so on. And it was this really safe place that we could be and evolve rather than determine prematurely who we were. And I look back at that in a small, strange way. It kind of mirrors what the kingdom could and should be like. So how do we do this, right? How do we truly see one another, but not fall into the trap of judgment that separates us? Brennan Manning reminds us that tragedy is that our attention centers on what people are not, rather than on what they are and who they might become. Um, I'm not sure of the exact source of this that I found, but I would like to believe that it could be true Somewhere in the world, I like the idea of it. I read about this ritual in a tribe of how they hold one another accountable. And I just wanna share what this ritual is because I think it teaches us something. They say that when someone does something harmful, they take the person to the center of the village where the whole tribe comes and surrounds them. For two days, they will say to the man all the good things that he has done again and again. The tribe believes each human desires safety, love, peace, and happiness, but sometimes in the pursuit of these things, they make mistakes. The community sees those mistakes as a cry for help. They unite then to lift him, to reconnect him with his true nature, to remind him who he really is until he fully remembers the truth of which he had been temporarily disconnected, that I am good. Julie Royce wrote so eloquently that if we hold one another accountable, we must do so with the intent of helping our brothers or sister escape sin and the destruction it wreaks, not to elevate ourselves. Otherwise, we become like the Pharisees who tied up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but were not willing to lift a finger to move them. In everything, we must be motivated by love. If we meet one another at the well of the Father, we're led to offer one another his living water, water that restores rather than leaving us parched and in need. 
The second point I want to talk about from this story is the judgment of ourselves. We hold judgment over ourselves, and it's a trap that so entangles. Part of the reason we can't let go of our shame and the strikes against ourselves is we don't really know how to release them, and we doubt that it's even really possible. We're taught to grow up, make the right choices, dust your boots off and get back on the horse. But there comes a point where we have to accept our brokenness and step into God's workshop. Let him look us over, dust off the mess that covers us, bandage our wounds, and begin the restoration process that only he can give. Shame keeps us from letting ourselves approach the Father. And we must ask ourselves, what do we do to avoid our shame? I really like to teach kids this concept because I so hope that it sets in at a young age, this mind shift of rather than, I messed up, I better hide it from my dad, to I messed up, I better call my dad. It's such pointless shame. It's the enemy's ploy. Why do we hide from him? He already knows. It's human instinct, I guess. It started at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? Why do we hide from him? Let's meet him at the well. Dealing with our judgment of ourselves reminds me of an illustration I want to share with you called The Tale of the Cracked Pot. A water bearer in India had two large pots, each hung on opposite ends of a pole that he carried around his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other was perfect. The perfect pot always delivered a full portion of water at the end of a long walk from the stream to the master's house. The cracked pot arrived only half full. Every day for a full two years, the water bearer delivered only one and a half pots of water. The perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments because it fulfilled magnificently the purpose of, for which it had been made. But the poor cracked pot was ashamed of its imperfection, miserable that it was able to accomplish only half of what it, it had been made to do. After the second year of what it perceived to be a bitter failure, the unhappy pot spoke to the water bearer one day by the stream. I am ashamed of myself, and I want to apologize to you, the pot said. Why? asked the bearer. What are you ashamed of? I have been able for these past two years to deliver only half my load because this crack in my side causes water to leak out all the way back to your master's house. Because of my flaws, you have to do all this work and you don't get full value from your efforts, the pot said. The water bearer felt sorry for the old cracked pot, and in his compassion, he said, as we, re we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. Indeed, as they went up the hill, the cracked pot took notice of the beautiful wildflowers on the side of the path, bright in the sun's glow, and the sight cheered it up a bit. But at the end of the trail, it still felt bad that it, it had leaked out half of its load. And so again, it apologized to the bearer for its failure. The bearer said to the pot, Did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path, not on the other pot's side? 
that is because I have always known about your flaw and I have taken advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path and every day as we have walked back from the stream, you have watered them. For two years, I have been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being just the way you are, he would not have had this beauty to grace his house. Brennan Manning continues, the pot had assumed that its sole purpose of its existence was to haul water from the stream to the house. The flawed pot had not expected God's grand purpose for it, to give, to give life to the dormant flower seeds along the path. The pot's weakness actually became its strength. The woman at the well could only see her cracks at this point in her life. She felt doomed and lacking in any purpose, but Jesus chose her, perhaps because of her cracks, as God often does, to begin the spread of his name. When she realizes who he is, she leaves her water jug and runs to spread the word. He needed someone so in need of him that they would spread his message like wildflower. He needs your cracks, your brokenness, to spread his love to this world. My third and final point is our judgment of his grace. We judge his grace. No matter how many times we're told it is the answer, that it is what restores, we wander away. You see, God has placed within each of us a natural thirst for him. When we deny it or don't know that, that's what leads us to other idolatries and ultimate brokenness, earthly water instead of living water. We forget or deny that his grace is enough. We can't imagine how he could love us so unconditionally, in such a raw manner, without holding back, without contingencies, that we seek wholeness in other places. I love these lyrics to one of my favorite songs by artist Jillian Edwards that describes this habit that we're often so stuck in and hard to let go of. She sings, I've been stuck in my reflection, knocking on the glass, thinking I'll find my own way, that I can move past. All the filth and mud stained on my skin, guess I'll work on myself, try it again. And I expect you to be polite, wait outside while I clean up, but you bust down the door to me. All of a sudden I'm proud of the emptiness inside me, proud of the way you fill me up. He busts down the door to you and me. He dives into our brokenness, breaking down the door to our falling apart heart. He's never deterred by the ugliness of it, but in fact, our ugliness is what draws him in. He had to see this woman. He knew her heart. He knew who she could be. He couldn't stand to be away from her for one second more. He chose her. I want to make sure we sit in the significance of him picking her. He knew this woman would spread his message. You see, as soon as we meet him at the well, we're ready to go. No need of special qualifications or training. 
The only requirement is a truly changed heart and an acceptance of his living water. That's all we need. The only requirement for spreading his love and message. Has he changed your heart? Go tell the world about it. C.S. Lewis describes God's process of a changed heart so vividly. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Will you let him in? Will you let his grace do the work? Will you let his living water and let it fill in all your broken cracks? It may even seep out and provide nourishment to those around you. Will you meet him at the well? I'll close today with one of my favorite stories. It's a story about my dad and his father when my dad was a young boy. And it's about my grandfather who passed away this year. My dad's often told us this story and I love it. So I rewrote it and made it into a little more like a storybook. So kids, if you are nearby, your parents, I hope you come in and listen because Miss Shauna is going to read you a story. And I titled this story, Chow Chow versus the Father. And I believe it illustrates the powerful grace of God. In a little town in Kansas lived a little boy named Sean. He watched Rocky movies and loved football and Elvis songs. Every day he'd walk to school, his all red running shoes on his feet. He knew when he passed the pool, he was now on old Chow Chow Street. Before we go any further, you must know, all dogs are born good, but anyone who isn't given love can turn bad and cause a fuss in the neighborhood. Poor Chow Chow didn't have love in his heart, and that was very sad. But he didn't seem very sad, just very, very mad. A scary dog that kids never offered a treat. Chow Chow's heart was now harder than limestone in the Kansas summer heat. One day, the little boy named Sean left his house in a hurry. You see, his parents had another argument that morning. His brain so busy, he had no idea what happened. Chow Chow had seen him from his little doghouse, and Sean thought Chow Chow was napping. Over his shoulder, the cling of a collar, a very low growl, how could Sean forget? He was passing by the meanest dog in town. His body went cold. It all happened in a flash. Chow Chow was coming, and boy was he fast. Sean froze for one second, and then his feet connected back to his brain. He ran and he ran until he outran Chow Chow, and most important, importantly, his chain. 
Not today, Chow Chow, Sean said with a grin. But what he didn't know is he would see him again. On a sunny Kansas Saturday, Sean and his dad were playing football at the park. His dad would throw south and little Sean would throw north, while the kids in the pool played minnows and sharks. Now, Sean's dad, Arlen, was a policeman. He was big and strong and brave. He was a hero in little Sean's eyes, no monster too chilling to cause Arlen to ever cave. Everything was perfect until Sean heard that familiar growl. His body went cold. He knew Chow Chow was on the prowl. He did a 180 and his stomach dropped. Chow Chow was running straight at him and Sean's legs were frozen in shock. Teeth bared, the hound's eyes were locked. No fence, no chain. Chow Chow would not be stopped. Little Sean turned to his father. He knew just the place. If he could just get to his arms, he would surely be safe. As fast as he could, he ran straight for his dad. All he could think to himself was, don't look back. He saw his dad and his dad saw him. Just a little bit further and little Sean would be safe again. But little Sean was so surprised by his dad's change in action. Instead of running at him and scooping him up, he ran right past him and straight for the angry pup. Arlen put his arms above his head and let out a yell so loud. And just like that, Chow Chow met the meanest dog in town. Chow Chow squealed like a baby bird freshly hatched from its egg. The scared pup ran away as fast as he could with his tail in between his legs. He ran all the way home. Chow Chow was afraid of Sean's father. It was a sight to be seen, one never to be forgotten. Sean couldn't believe his eyes. What he saw made his heart swell. And now from here on out, this was the story he would tell. We all have an armor in the shape of a father, hovering close, waiting for the cue. When things get scary, run straight for him and he will run straight for you. Thank you so much for allowing me to share with you all today. I pray that we will go throughout our week and remember to meet him at the well and meet each other at the well. I love you all and we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.